0: Hi and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello, here we are at episode four of Crash Course Catholicism. This is super exciting. Okay, so in our last episode, we talked about how God reveals himself to us, okay? The ways that he reveals himself, And now in this episode, we want to go one step further and ask, okay, so what does God reveal to us about himself? In other words, what do we know about God? Yeah, what's he like? So that's what we're going to cover in this episode. Okay, what are the attributes of God? And I guess the best place to start with answering this question is by going to what God himself has told us about himself. And we find a record of this in the Old Testament, right? In Exodus chapter three, Moses encounters God in the form of a burning bush. And he asks God, what is your name? And God responds, I am who I am. And another way that that is translated is I am who am. Now, what does that mean? Because that kind of sounds like an enigmatic riddle, right? Or almost like God is being petulant, like he's being like, uh, Moses, I am who I am, okay? Stop asking questions. Okay, that is not what God is doing. Let's break it down. So what happens when I tell you what my name is? Okay, I say, I am Caitlin. By saying I am, that is a statement of the fact that I exist, right? I am. And then by adding Caitlin... I'm telling you the manner in which I exist. So I exist as Caitlin and that Caitlin has particular properties or attributes. So like she's got blonde hair and she's five foot ten and she recently got way too emotionally invested in a French crime show and had to like take a step back and reevaluate her life. (laughs) Okay, so that is the manner in which I exist as Caitlin. Now, let's return to God's name. By saying I am who am, God is telling us that I exist and the manner in which I exist is existence itself. Okay. In other words, I am existence. Now, what does that mean? Because that can sound so kind of abstract as to almost be meaningless, right? Like, okay, God is existence. Like, what is that? Well, in the same way that I said earlier that as Caitlin, I have particular attributes, we can say the same thing about God. Existence itself has particular attributes. Now, what are those attributes? Well, we're not in heaven, right? Okay, so we don't have that kind of face-to-face access to God where we can just go up to him and be like, what are your attributes? Okay, but what we can do if we want to understand the nature of existence is is take a look around us at stuff that exists in the same way that if we don't have access to the ocean, we can study a sample of seawater. So this is something that philosophers have been doing since the Greeks, right? It started with Plato and Aristotle, was expanded on by Thomas Aquinas, and has been refined by modern and contemporary philosophers. So people like Etienne Gilson or uh, Father Robert Spitzer. Did you like my little French accent there, Etienne Gilson? (laughs) In my Australian accent, it would have been Etienne Gilson, and no one wants to hear that. So what these philosophers have done is they've tried to figure out, okay, what are the fundamental properties of everything that exists, right? What are some things that we can say belong to everything that exists in some way? And we call these properties the transcendentals, okay, because they transcend individual instances and actually belong to existence as a whole. And these transcendentals are unity, truth, goodness, and beauty. And some people add a fifth one, which is love. Now, you might hear that list and think, hang on, how can you say that beauty is an attribute of everything that exists? Like, I've seen plenty of things that are really ugly. Or goodness, you know, how can you say everything has the attribute of goodness? Like, what about a tidal wave? Okay, how can that be good? And those are fantastic questions and it's something that we need to clarify. When we say that the attributes of unity, truth, goodness, beauty, and love exist in everything, we're not saying that we find them in their fullest, kind of highest form in everything that exists. So when we say that love is a property of all existence, we're not saying that there are great high romances between twigs in the forest, right? Instead... It's like we're trying to find a gingerbread house, okay? So we start by looking around us for little crumbs on the ground, okay? And as we start to follow that trail of crumbs, they kind of get bigger and take on more shape and become more solid, and then they eventually lead us to the gingerbread house. So, for instance, when we say love is present in all of creation, we're not always looking for it in its highest, purest form. Instead, what we're looking for is the sort of crumbs or the fingerprints of love on created things. So if you remember a couple of episodes ago, we said that in order for there to be love, you have to have a lover, a beloved, and then some manifestation of that love. And we see an example of this in its kind of highest, purest form in human relationships, right? And in particular in the family. So you've got, you know, the mother and father and then their love for one another can be manifested in the form of a child, right? But even in the smallest and most insignificant created things, we still see the kind of breadcrumbs of that sort of three-part relationship, And we see it in reproduction, right? So animals and plants reproduce, even cells replicate themselves. Okay. So even in in the smallest units of creation, we see those kind of breadcrumbs of what we call love. Now let's return to our list of transcendentals and see where we can find the rest of them in existence. So unity. Now this one is pretty straightforward, right? Basically the idea is that everything that exists, exists as a single unified whole, right? So I am one being, okay, one whole being. My mother is a separate whole being, okay? Now, I'm made up of different parts. I've got arms and legs and a face. But those parts all come together to form one whole united thing. And then, of course, we can see this unity on a kind of higher spiritual level So we can live a unified inner life, okay? Or we can have disunity within ourselves. So for instance, you know, if I go out with my friends and I'm, you know, drinking and smoking and swearing, and then the next day I see my grandmother and I'm like, oh, hello, how are you? (laughs) Would you please kindly pass the salt? And you're like, whoa, hang on, who is that person? That is not the same person that was hanging out with their friends last night. Okay, but whether or not I have that kind of like inner transcendent unity within myself, I still possess that fundamental material unity, okay, and so does everything else that exists. And then truth. So what do we mean when we say that everything that exists has the property of truth? So we know that we can seek truth on a higher level, like we can look for philosophical or moral truths, and we can choose to live or not to live according to those truths. But even aside from that, every single thing that exists has the property of truth. And what we mean by that is that there are certain things about them that are true regardless of what I say or think or perceive about them. So, for instance, I am Caitlin. I am not my mother. Now, that truth about me might be misperceived, like someone might mistake me for my mother. I mean, it's unlikely she's like two heads shorter than me and she's got purple hair. (laughs) But let's say that they did, right? That would not make me my mother. Now, that sounds like a pretty kind of straightforward, simple thing to say, right? Things are what they are, and they're not anything else. But actually, it's kind of a countercultural thing to say at the moment, because we live in a world that is leaning more and more towards what we call nominalism. Okay, which basically is the idea that there is no fundamental truth to things. Things are what I call them, okay, or what I perceive them to be. And it kind of goes hand in hand with relativism. So in the same way that we've gotten rid of the idea that there are moral truths, we're starting to lose the sense that there are even physical truths. But in the same way that we've said that, you know, there are no true relativists, I think the same can be said about nominalism. Like at the end of the day, people do know that some things are true. Okay. So for instance, if I gave my pen to my friend for her birthday and said, oh, happy birthday, I bought you a bunch of roses, she would be like, no, you didn't, and now I'm mad at you. Okay. And rightly so, because we both know that that's not a bunch of roses. Okay, so unity and truth. And now the third transcendental, which is goodness. Again, when we say that everything possesses goodness in some way, we're not always talking about moral goodness. So, for instance, if I said to you, my father is a good man, you would understand that I mean that he you know, is kind to others and is honest and trustworthy, etc. And then if I said to you, my dog is a good dog. You know that I'm not talking about it on the same level, right? I'm not saying that my dog is kind to the servants and regularly gives to the poor. Okay. I'm saying that he's snuggly. (laughs) And even on the most fundamental, basic, physical level, we can say that stuff that exists is good and we don't mean it on like a moral level. So this is how my mum put it to me and I found it really helpful. She was like, say if you're doing mathematics, okay, and you go from zero to one, That's immediately a positive number, okay? So as soon as you go from zero of non-existence to existence, that is a positive, a fundamental positive, the fact that that thing exists. And things can become sort of physically perfect, right, when they sort of reach the, the fullness of their potential. But even when things aren't physically perfect, insofar as they exist, they exist along that spectrum of goodness, Okay, so moving on to beauty. Now, (laughs) that's another kind of tricky one because we need to make it clear that we're not saying that everything that exists is kind of aesthetically pleasing to us. So in philosophy, we say something is beautiful when it is ordered and proportionate. And everything that exists has order and proportion to some extent. OK, so even when you're looking at, you know, like a a modern building that's made of concrete and it's got all these sharp edges and you're like, oh, it's so ugly. Even on a fundamental, most basic level, there is order in like the cells that, that make up the materials that we use to construct that building. Yeah, that breadcrumb of beauty exists in some way. And then on that higher level, we can achieve another kind of beauty when we are internally ordered and proportionate, right? Like when we are ordered towards the good. So for instance, you might have a friend that whenever you're talking about them to someone else, you always say like, oh, she is such a beautiful person. And what you mean by that, you might mean that she's physically beautiful. Okay, her features are very ordered and proportionate. But what you're also saying is that, there's this kind of orientation towards the good. Like she's a good person. She looks out for others. She's kind. And that gives that person this sort of other level of inner beauty. But even if we don't have that inner beauty, every single material thing that exists possesses that attribute of order and proportion to some degree. Okay, so if these transcendentals, unity, truth, goodness, beauty, and love, are the fundamental properties of existence then that must necessarily mean that God, who is the fullness of existence, is the fullness of all of these things. That means that he is truth itself and love itself and goodness and beauty itself. So think of the last time you really felt loved, right? Like by a sibling or a parent or a friend or a spouse, Amplify that by a bajillion, right, by infinity, because that love that we feel is like it's one of the crumbs along the way. It's it's like a portal into heaven and the fullness of that love, which is God or truth. You know, think of the last time you read a really good book or you had just a really nourishing kind of DNM with your friend and you came away from it. And you're like, yeah, truth. OK, that is again, it's a crumb along the way. And God is all of truth itself. Like, can you imagine how satisfying that would be? Okay, now, one quick thing that I want to say is you might be thinking at this point, okay, well, God is the fullness of existence. Evil exists, okay? So is God the fullness of evil as well and suffering and pain? Okay, so in response to that, we need to make it clear that evil is not an inherent property of anything that exists. Evil is the absence or the distortion of good. So I love the way that Christopher West puts this. No relation. (laughs) He says, the devil doesn't have his own clay. And I love that because it just highlights that everything that exists comes from God, right? And God is goodness itself. So it is fundamentally good, but it can be distorted or misused. So let's take the example of fire. Now, what is fire? it is light and heat. Okay. And that is, those are good things. You know, I can light a fire in my fireplace and warm up my house or light a candle and see where I'm going, but I can also set fire to my neighbor's house. Okay. Or, you know, lightning might strike a tree and start a bushfire that burns down a city. So that good can be distorted. And this is where we see, and we'll get into this in later episodes but this is where we see the signs of what we call original sin, okay? This kind of fundamental brokenness in the world. But even if a fire burns down a house, that doesn't make fire itself a bad thing, okay? Evil is not an inherent property of that fire. So we can truly say that God is the fullness of everything that exists. Now, one other crucial point that I want to make note of is that God is unity itself. Now, what does that mean? You know how I said earlier that as a human person, I am made up of parts, right? I have arms and legs and a face and they all come together. In God, he's so totally unified that he's not divisible into parts. So all of those different attributes that we've mentioned, love and truth and goodness and beauty, are so completely united that they're actually one thing. So what does that mean? Let's think about what that means. Ultimately, truth itself is beauty itself, which is love itself, which is goodness itself. So I remember years ago, I had a conversation with an atheist and who said to me very dismissively at one point, he was like, See, this is the difference between you and me. You would rather be happy and I would rather be right. (laughs) And I was like 21 at the time. I didn't know how to defend myself against that. But looking back, I was like, yeah, you were assuming that happiness and truth were incompatible. But in reality, if God is the fullness of existence, then all those attributes of existence must be compatible with each other. So that can be really helpful for us when we're looking for God in two ways. One, it reminds us that if we are really seeking truth, it will bring with it happiness okay, and goodness and love. And that doesn't mean that we'll get around feeling amazing all the time. But on a deeper level, there will be a kind of peace that comes with the pursuit of truth. The other reason why this is really helpful is that it reminds us that all of these things, truth, unity, goodness, beauty, love, they are all pathways to God. So, you know, we can seek God via the pursuit of truth, right? Philosophy and theology. Fantastic. Go for it. Do that. But we can also seek God via beauty, going to an art gallery or reading a really good book, watching a good film or cultivating good relationships, you know, love. Like this is why the church calls marriage a vocation, right? It's a path to heaven. Our earthly loves can be a pathway to love itself. And in fact, If we really want to be united with God, we actually need all of the transcendentals because God is all of those things. So if we're like obsessively pursuing truth, 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 but we're neglecting love okay, and beauty, then there's something kind of lacking there. Or if you're an artist and you're creating things that are aesthetically pleasing, but they lack truth or they're even leading you away from the truth, then again, there's something kind of broken or missing there. Now, a couple of other points to make about God. Returning to this idea that God cannot be divided up into different parts. What this means is that God cannot be a material being. Okay, that sounds like a bit of a random connection. So what do I mean? Let's unpack it. What I mean is this. Every material thing that exists is made up of parts and can be divided into parts. Now, God is so completely united that he's just one thing. He's oneness itself. Therefore, he cannot be a material being, right? He's not made of matter. I mean, he took on a material form in the person of Jesus, but that's different to saying that he is a material being. He can enter into matter, but he isn't made of matter, now, the other thing to mention is that God is the fullness of goodness. Another way to put that is that he is perfection. Now, in the material world, things can only be perfect in a limited way. So you might have a perfect tree. It's fully grown. It's got luscious leaves. It is the treest tree it's ever going to be. But that tree, while it might be a perfect tree, it's also potentially a perfect table. But it hasn't achieved that perfection yet, but it could. So anything that is perfect is perfect in a limited way. It's not perfect in every way. God is perfection itself, which means that we could not add To or subtract anything from him to make him more perfect. In other words, God can't change. And the consequence of that is that God must exist outside time. Okay, now what is the relationship between change and time? Well, think about it. What is time? Time is the marker of change. Okay, it's how we measure change. So you can think of in a sci-fi film, when time stops, everything stops moving and stops changing, right? Or there's that book called um, Tuck Everlasting. I don't know if you read that as a, as a kid. And it's about a guy who's immortal and he never changes, right? He, he looks the same. I mean, he changes in some ways, like he changes his clothes and his appearance, but physically he doesn't change. So if time is the marker of change and God cannot change, then God must exist outside time. So what we've just said is that God is immaterial, he's not made of matter, and is not time-bound. And this can be really helpful when we're trying to understand who God is, because this is a kind of a rookie error that people might make. When we first encounter the idea of God, we might think of him kind of like how we would think of one of the Avengers, right? Like, like he's just this, he's a created being who exists inside creation and inside time, but he's just like supremely powerful, right? He's like the top dog, like Thor God of thunder or something. And the problem with conceptualizing God in this way is that, it brings up a whole bunch of issues because as Christians, one of the things that we say about God is that he is omnipotent okay, or all powerful, omniscient or all knowing and omnipresent, meaning he is present to all existence at all times. So we might hear that and think, well, if God is all powerful then can he create a rock that's so heavy that he can't lift it? Or if he is all-knowing, then that must mean that he knows what I'm going to do next – which must mean that I don't have free will. Or, you know, if God is omnipresent, then like, what? Is he in my fridge? Is he under my bed? Is he in my pinky finger? What do you mean? He's everywhere. And so understanding that God exists outside of time and matter can help us to respond to those questions. So, for instance, the question, can God create a rock that's so heavy he can't lift it? God's not like Zeus wandering around with big muscles picking up rocks, okay? He's not a material being, I mean, the other problem with that question is that it's a nonsense question, right? It literally saying, can God create a rock that's so heavy he can't lift it is a contradiction in terms. And it makes as much sense as if I were to say, like, well, if God is so powerful, then can he teach my left bicep to play poker? Like, what? You just said nothing. That's a nonsense question. Okay. And then you know, with this idea of omniscience, you know, if God knows everything, then I don't have free will. But God is not standing in a point in time, okay, looking ahead and being like, oh, this is what you're going to do. Rather, he's outside of time altogether, experiencing every moment in time in one go, okay? Now, that's difficult to conceptualize or impossible to conceptualize because we are within time, you know, in the same way that a baby in the womb can't conceptualize a fridge. But that doesn't make it impossible. So we can think of it like um, if you've seen the film Batman the Dark Knight. If you haven't seen that film, by the way, what is wrong with you? Please go and watch it immediately immediately. But right towards the end of that film, Batman has to find the Joker. And so what he does is he harnesses the sonar capacities of every mobile phone in all of Gotham City and uses that technology to basically create this like wall of images of everything that is happening in the whole city in one go. And then he makes Lucius Fox like stand and babysit it. And he's like incredibly uncomfortable about this gross invasion of privacy. But what he's able to do is just take in everything that is happening in one go. And if we think of that wall to wall screen of images as not displaying everything that's happening in one moment, but everything that has happened is happening and will happen. And God can stand there like Batman, right, and take it all in. (laughs) I can't believe I just compared God to Batman, but you know what I mean? And if one of the citizens of Gotham City turned around and was like, I don't have any free will because Batman is watching what I'm doing. It's like, no. Okay, he's aware of what you're doing. And because he's God, he, his permissive will, he allows things to happen as they're happening and will happen, etc. But he's not sort of looking ahead and do, like in his crystal globe being like, I see what you're going to do. And then finally, this idea that God is omnipresent. Okay, God is not like, you know that um that is it like badges or moles, you know that game that you can play at gaming arcades where they like pop up and you've got a hammer and you've got to be like pow pow and get them. God isn't like popping up everywhere being like, hello, I'm over here. Now I'm over here. Okay, we don't mean that he's physically present in that way. What we mean is God is existence itself. Therefore, anything that exists and everything that exists participates in his existence. Therefore, he is present to everything at all times, but not necessarily in that material, physical way. Okay, now one final point for us to sit with. We've said that God is love itself. And this, again, is something that is just so important to bear in mind because all of this stuff that we've covered in this episode, right, God is the fullness of existence and he exists outside of time and space and he's omniscient and blah, blah, blah. It might start to sound kind of abstract, right, like God's just a set of concepts floating about in the ether, quite depersonalized. But we have to remember that God is, is love itself and that means that he wants to connect with me he is a personal God okay he specifically loves me he created me because he loves me and he wants to be in relationship with me and not only that right but God oh God is so good like he knows us so well he knows that we are material beings and in order to really understand and know something we need need to be able to kind of grasp it and see it and touch it. And that is why he became a human person, right? He became a man who had, you know, a face and a smile and a voice and hands that reached out and touched people. So if we want to really understand the nature of God, okay, these qualities of truth and goodness and unity and love, we should look at the person of Jesus, right? Because that is where those qualities take on that kind of physical form. So we can spend time reading the Gospels, looking at God, placing ourselves in those scenes and looking at his face, listening to his voice, you know, seeing what he does and seeing those qualities of truth, beauty, goodness take on a kind of tangible human form. And on top of that, and this is something that we'll get into more in later episodes, he remains with us present body, blood, soul and divinity in the Eucharist. And as Catholics, we can see and touch and taste him in the Eucharist every single day if we want to. So when we're considering these kind of big theoretical ideas, they don't have to be, you know, so big that they're overwhelming and kind of like a roadblock to getting to know God better. Rather, when we spend time with God in the Gospels and in the Eucharist, those qualities take on a tangible form and we can sit there with God and we can look at him and think, oh my gosh, like all of that, all of that infinity of goodness has a tangible form, right? Like this is someone that I can get to know because all of these ideas, they're so big and so interesting, but they kind of mean nothing if they don't translate into a personal relationship with God. Okay. Because that's ultimately what he wants for us. So there's a a song that I love by Sufjan Stevens called To Be Alone With You, which is basically about this idea that like God himself became man and then died and rose from the dead specifically for the purposes of getting to know me. Like, that's insane. How can we do anything but worship that God and love that God in return? Okay, so that is everything that we're going to cover in this episode. Now, one of the things that we've sort of hinted at in this episode and in the last one is that love involves this kind of three way dynamism, right, of lover, beloved, and then the manifestation of that love. OK, and this is what we're going to cover in the next episode, the Trinity Okay. So how can God be one being and three persons? It is crazy. It's like, oh my gosh, talk about things that are difficult to fit into a half hour podcast. This is like a huge mind blowing topic, but I'm really looking forward to unpacking it because it's just fantastic. But for now, we're going to leave it there. And I will look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye.